right, let's get our Bibles open up to Jonah chapter 3. And I am sure most of you are aware of this already, but on page 5 of your worship guide, there is a place to take notes, sermon title, the passage we're looking at this morning, uh, verses 1 through 5 of Jonah 3, and uh, an outline and some reflection questions. So I want to draw your attention to that. Please do make use of that if it helps you to stay engaged and attentive to what God is teaching us this morning from Jonah 3. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read these first five. Look at verse 1 with me as I read this aloud. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You, you can have a seat. Our Father, we, we very necessarily must ask you to give us receptivity to what you're showing us here. Naturally crave to hear from you, even after we've been saved and impacted by your grace, uh, we are still prone to wander. We still want things that are not helpful or healthy for us. We are like sheep, and we need you to shepherd us. We need you to do a deep, supernatural version of shepherding in us. We need you to give us new hearts that are inclined toward you. And uh, we ask God that you would help us in that way right now that you would cause us to delight to listen to you, to receive uh, what you're telling us from your word and that we would be changed by it because your word, you very clearly say, is alive. It's active and we ask that that is how we would experience the Bible right now, this morning. And we ask for you uh, to, to impact us like that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this past week, I was at the beach and, uh, you know, staring out at this big, I think some crazy things. Maybe it's a mixture of the, the ominousness, I don't know if that's a word, but the, the grandeur of the ocean and like the heat and the salt air or something. But, you know, you think about some crazy stuff. Um, so, you know, you're sitting there thinking about stuff, looking out at the ocean, and you start to imagine, what if, what if a fin popped up? you know, on the surface of the water. And there's someone, you know, maybe 50 yards there. Maybe they're kayaking. Maybe they're just in the water trying to body surf. And you see the fin moving toward the person. It's getting closer. But, um, you know. And uh, the fin is right there, right next to the person. And then the body of this shark comes up out of the water. And uh, the jaws, you see the jaws open. And uh, they ever so gingerly, delicately just settle upon the person. They don't chomp down. They just 
delicately settle, sort of couch the person in its jaws. And then the shark turns and, and it makes its way towards shore. And then when it gets into the surf, it just the person steps out and they walk to their stuff on the beach. Some of you are gonna you're gonna say, that's just silly. That that's ridiculous. And I agree. But that would be crazy, right? Like if you saw that, and, and if you had the presence of mind to pull out your phone and record it, like that would be a viral YouTube sensation. That would be insane because we're accustomed to hearing about shark attacks. We expect a shark to attack. We don't expect a shark to taxi a person from out in the ocean to the shore. That would be so crazy. If you saw that, you would be going around telling everybody that you, that you come in contact with, this happened. This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Totally unexpected. Or what if you were sitting on the beach and you know, you're used to seeing people walking their dogs. It's a pleasant, it's a pleasant thing to, to see someone walking their dogs. And dogs, you know, they love to be with their masters. And maybe their master stops and takes them off the leash for a few minutes. And they play fetch, fetch with them in the surf. And the, lo the dog loves to obey their master and go and get the ball. And, you know, you know, scamper around in the water and then bring the ball back. What if you're sitting there on the beach and you saw someone walking a cat? cat on a leash, you know, and then, the, and then they take the cat off the leash and they, they, they pick up, I don't know, a ball of yarn and they chuck it into the surf and the, the cat, you know, frolics in the surf and gets all wet and splashes around and bats the ball of yarn and then, and then obediently retrieves it and brings it back. That would be crazy. That would be the, you'd look at that and you'd say, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen because cats, they're very, um, they're very, uppity. You know, they don't like to be on leashes. They're not going to submit to, to, you know, being on a leash and they're certainly not going to go fetch a ball of yarn and they're not going to get in water. Cats hate water. This would be the craziest thing you've ever seen. Well, we have here in Jonah chapter three, a, uh, a, a series of really crazy things happening on all kinds of levels. We have a really crazy batch of situations happening here in Jonah chapter 3. And it starts with, with this first thing you read in verse 1, that God is still employing Jonah. I don't know about y'all, but if I were God, I would have fired Jonah by this point in the story. I mean, maybe the free ride, you know, back to some, some land in, in the belly of the fish, fine, right? You, you, maybe I don't kill you, Jonah, but you're fired, at least you are fired from this particular mission of taking uh, the message uh, that God wants you to take to the Ninevites. You are not the man for the job, Jonah. But that's not what we see. Look at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah again for the second time. And uh, God has not changed the mission. He says, the mission is the same, Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and you need to call out against them. Tell them the message that I give you to tell them. In my response to this, as, as I imaginatively, imaginatively immerse myself in this story, my response is, really? Really, God, you're still trying to use Jonah for this job? Imagine it like this. Imagine somebody has a terminal disease. Okay, they, they have something that, that is deeply afflicting them. 
Now, this person needs to be told the grim diagnosis. They need someone to go and tell them the bad news, that they have this terminal disease. And you want to find someone to break the news to them in a delicate way, right? You want to find someone who, if bad news needs to be shared, they're going to do it with some compassion. They're going to do it with some sensitivity, okay? They need to hear the bad news, but have someone with some compassion go and tell them. And, and perhaps you would even want to find someone who could coach the person on the receiving end of this grim bad news. You know, someone who could kind of walk them through, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to treat the disease. Here, here are some of the next steps. Here are some counselors that you could talk to to help you process this very heavy news. At the very least, I think we can all agree, you're probably not going to send the guy who, have a, who has a history of hating the patient, who, who, has, a history of, who ha, has a history of saying, I really don't want to do anything even in the vicinity of kindness or charity toward the person with this terminal disease. You're not going to pick the person who's just going to insensitively walk up to the guy with the illness and say, look, you're a goner, I give you a month, and then just walk off. You're not going to pick that guy. And that's Jonah. I think we can all agree that Jonah's bedside manner is, is not existent. He, he's not going to be tender. He's not going to be compassionate. He's certainly not going to offer any next steps, you know, coaching tips or advice to the Ninevites. In fact, you, you, you probably would want to be concerned if you sent Jonah for this job that if he were walking into the room to tell the patient the news, you'd want to remove all the pillows because he's liable to suffocate the patient with the pillow. This is not the guy for the job. He's made that abundantly clear. Jonah's track record is not great, to say the least. And yet, God is still employing him. And what are we supposed to take away from this? This first point, what are we supposed to take away Here's what you're supposed to take away from this. God is still employing you. This is huge. Because just like Jonah, your track record is not stellar. If, if you've been saved by God's amazing grace, you know because you have eyes to see. You, you have an awareness. You have a, a new regenerate heart. You know better than anybody that you still wander away from God. You are still prone to do what is not helpful or healthy for you or other people. You know that your inclinations are often taking you away from the will of God. You're not aligned with the will of God. It's not to say you're as evil as you could possibly be or you're always making the wrong choices, but you know very often it is the case that you're not doing what is pleasing and glorifying to God. And yet God is still employing you. God still loves you. He treasures you. And he, yes, wants to involve you into, in his kingdom work. He hasn't fired you. And that is crazy. When you think about your delinquency, the ways that you have been depraved in the sight of a holy God, the fact that he hasn't fired you, that is crazy. That is some next level amazing kind of grace that God is operating with. I was having coffee with a buddy a couple weeks ago, and he shared this quote with me from Groucho Marx. Y'all know Groucho? What a great name. If you guys have a baby boy coming, just put it on the list. I'm not saying you have to choose it, but you don't meet many people named Groucho that would have me as a member. 
You know, we all resonate with that, right? Because he's being honest. Like on some level, he's saying, I am a deeply flawed, messed up person. And you know, most organizations require you, if they're going to admit you for membership, they require you to be impressive, right? The, the prerequisite for admission is be impressive. So a lot of you would like to go to college, or perhaps you did go to college. What do you got to do to go to college? You've got to be impressive. You, you've got to get the grades. You've got to write the really great essay for the scholarship. You've got to do community service hours and all kinds of other things to put on your resume so that the college admissions board will admit you. And then for some people, they get to college and they pledge a fraternity or a sorority. And in order to get admitted into these Greek life uh, social clubs, you have to be impressive. You have to be popular. You have to be cool. And then if you graduate college, you're going to probably want to get this thing called a job. And in order to get the job, what do you have to be? You have to be impressive. You have to go and interview for the job. You have to show them your resume. You have to impress them. These people who sit and interview you, you have to show them why you're worthy of being hired. And if you get the job, maybe you're going to join the country club. And if you go to a country club, you got to be impressive. They're not just going to let anybody walk off the street with no resume, with no credentials, join their club. You have to be able to pay. And even cemeteries, even cemeteries I have come to find, you have to be impressive. There's this cemetery in Brooklyn, New York called Greenwood Cemetery. You have to go through a lot of trouble and a lot of hassle prior to dying to get admitted into Greenwood Cemetery. You're going to pay at least $20,000 just for the burial plot. That's not, to, that's not to say all of the other funeral arrangements that need to happen when the day arrives. But that's not what the church is like. That's not how the church operates. The church is more like a hospital or a, a rehab center or an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. The, the church does not say, impress us and then you can enjoin. The, the church, just like a hospital, just like a rehab center says, the qualification is neediness. It's not impressiveness. You know, we sing this, uh, whenever we sing, come ye sinners, there's this really succinct, great line in that hymn where it says, all the fitness God requires is that you would feel your need of him. God wants you to bring all of your neediness and all of your weakness and all of your vulnerability and yes, even your sin and your mistakes and your flaws. And he says, that is what we work with here. Just like a hospital. The, the prerequisite is you are wounded, you are weak, you are a sinner, you have a problem. And God says, that's the bedrock. That's the main material that I work with. Really, the best example of this in all of Scripture is, is the group of people Jesus recruited. The apostles, right? The leaders of, of the church in the New Testament. Of all the people that God could have gathered to himself to work with him for his kingdom expansion. Who does he pick? He picks these uneducated fishermen, these, these former terrorists, tax collectors, and they are deeply flawed. I mean, not to pick on Peter, but, but Peter is often put to the front as like the premier example of what the apostles are like, right? He's the spokesman. He's the, he's the guy we're always hearing about. Peter, he's a flawed guy. So are these, there are these moments in the, in the gospel accounts where you see Peter has this pride. He has this ego problem. He has a, a, a way too high opinion of himself. And all the other disciples, they're the same way. And then as you go along in the story of Peter, you find that he's got this, this issue of being kind of prejudiced toward people. 
Like the first time that God tells Peter that he can now eat with Gentiles. He was raised as a good Jewish boy, and now he can go eat with Gentiles. Peter doesn't just listen to God tell him that and obey. He doesn't just trust and obey. He has to be told multiple times because he's disagreeing with God. He's doubting God. He doesn't quickly, immediately trust and obey God. And we see this as a recurring problem for Peter because in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, we see Peter is still standoffish toward Gentiles. And, and he's misleading the flock of God because he's acting in this displeasing, prejudicial way. Now, does that mean God fires? We wish he would. Perhaps that would make things more simple. You know, that's, that's a more black and white way to approach life. But that's not how God works. God says, I am still going to employ you even when you've been delinquent and lousy. So again, let's, let's apply this to our lives. We have been lousy evangelists, right? Just think, when was the last time you, you excitedly shared the gospel with somebody? Like the way you tell people about your feelings on Ted Lasso. Like the way you talk about your favorite movies. The way you share YouTube videos that are just so cool and interesting to you. When was the last time you shared the gospel with a non-Christian? Because it was this joyful thing that was just welling up inside of you. We are lousy at that. We're timid at best. We like to just sort of keep it to ourselves. We're afraid that if we talk about Jesus with our non-Christian friends or neighbors, they're going to cancel us. They're going to think we're conservative, uptight, bigoted Christians. And we get really afraid. And we quench the spirit. And we don't talk about Jesus, even though he's our husband, he's our best friend, he's our master who gave his life for us. We're lousy as evangelists. But the point is not that you would wallow in guilt. The point is, God says, I'm still, I'm still ready to use you. Later today, tomorrow, I've not, God's, God's looking at you and he's saying, I'm not, I've not given up. Yeah, you've been lousy in a lot of ways. I'm still employing you. You've been a lousy spouse. Husbands, you're supposed to love your wives like Christ loves the church. You, do, you doing that? Not, not really. No. God says, well, it doesn't change the fact that I'm still behind you on that. I'm still employing you in that job. Wives, are you, are you submitting to your husbands as, as Jesus submits to his heavenly father? Is the joy set before him? Come, no. I get it. I get why you're not doing it. But are we, are we doing that? Parents, are we disciplining our kids or are we just like, gosh, that's a lot of work to provide consequences and structure for kids. I mean, they're just constantly, they're constantly disobeying. They're in need. On that note, kids, are you obeying your parents? Right? Are you obeying your parents? No, you're not. No, you're not. But guess what? God says, I haven't given up. God's not jaded, he's not cynical, he's not pessimistic about employing you in the work of his kingdom. And the most dramatic example of that in scripture is perhaps Jonah. What would be crazy, what would be absolutely insane would be if you were lukewarm toward a God like this. A God who is so long-suffering, a God who is so steadfast and patient with you that he would continue to employ you in his kingdom work, even after you, you have proven again and again that you're really not competent, that you're really not even interested, God is still employing you. So it would be crazy to be lukewarm toward a God who is this lavish in his love and patience toward us. But that's what we see. Jonah, as crazy as it, as it is, he's lukewarm. 
This, this is crazy. Jonah has been shown dramatic mercy. I mean, he was thrown into that ocean. It was a raging, tempestuous ocean. He thought, I, you know, a couple of minutes at most I might survive in this thing. And then this thing happened. A giant fish swallows him. And he lives in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. This is nuts. This is crazy. God's provision for Jonah is insane. And yet, Jonah, he's not, he's not reacting with gratitude. You know, Jonah, after this experience in the fish, he should be, even if God didn't tell him to be, he should be resolved to permanently moving to Nineveh to revel in the staggering, amazing mercy of God with these people. Uh, in preparation for this sermon, I did my favorite version of sermon research. I, I spent some time on YouTube. And I watched the, the ending, a couple of different endings to the story, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And, and the one I'm going to tell y'all you need to go home and watch is the one, it's the Jim Carrey one. It's not really Jim Carrey. It's like an animated version of Jim Carrey as Ebenezer. Uh, and just watch the final scene, okay? Type that into the search bar of YouTube. Final scene of A Christmas Carol. Look for the Jim Carrey one. That's what Jonah should look like. He, he should be running through the streets of Nineveh saying, guys, God is real and he really does love you. God, his mercy is amazing. Like his wrath is real. He's got to tell that part because God tells him to. But, but there's this underlying theme that Jonah is well aware of that God's mercy is more. And he should be living in Nineveh for the rest of his life to revel in the amazing mercy of God with these people. Jonah should be enthusiastic but he's not even half-hearted. Look at verses 3 and 4. God tells us Jonah is extremely lukewarm. Nineveh is a three-day journey from end to end, and Jonah does one day's worth of work. So not even half-hearted. He doesn't even go halfway through the city. He's half-hearted, which begs the question, what is something that God is enthusiastic about that you would have to admit you are lukewarm about. We don't have to guess at this. There's, there's a lot of substance in Scripture where God is showing us very clearly, this is what I'm passionate about. And I'm inviting you to get in on that, for you to be passionate with me about this thing. So what is that? Well, we've already covered one base, flawed people. God is very passionate about loving and working with flawed people. Are, are you on board with that? Not, not really, right? We, don't, we tend to tolerate people to a degree, but at some point we say, look, I, ju I just can't do it anymore, right? Because this person's so screwed up. They're so needy. They're so flawed, whatever it is. And God says, you need to get more passionate about this because wherever you go in life, I've got news for you, flawed people are the norm, right? We, we, we sort of pretend in some ways, and for a time we can kind of pretend our way through not being as flawed as we are, but the fact is we're messed up. We're all, we're all very broken and needy and complicated, and you're going to run into that. And God says, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay massive dividends if you go ahead and get excited about that. What about the Bible? <laughs> we're, we're really excited about, you know, the summer blockbusters. And we, we, it's funny to me, whenever we go out to eat with friends, it's so easy to talk about, like, what TV shows are you watching? And we are obviously deeply invested in these characters. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be, right? You read a good book, you see a good film, you watch a good TV series. I mean, we can talk about that. But, but do we imaginatively invest in the Bible in that way? Because here's the deal. When God took on flesh, 
Jesus of Nazareth, you know what he did? His, his Netflix, you know what it was? It was the Bible. This is what he was obsessed with. Wherever Jesus would go, he'd say, oh man, have you not read? Have you not read about David? And then he would just imaginatively go down this rabbit hole of all of the, the details of David's life. He was so invested. Because the Bible is God's active and living revelation. And, and Jesus said, I want, I want to cultivate an addiction to that. I want to religiously partake of the Bible, not because it's this perfunctory, duty-oriented thing, but because it's my delight, it's my food. I don't live on bread alone. I live on the Word of God. Do you feel that way about the Bible? Because that's how God feels about the Bible. What about, what about giving? Are you excited about giving? I'm 41. No, I'm 40. I'm almost 41. Um, Christmas rolls around. I still just want to get presents. Nothing has changed. I, maybe I've gotten a little more excited about giving, but I still want to get. I just love getting, getting, getting. More, more, more. Accumulate, get more. God says, you know, getting's not bad, but, but giving. Giving is the real definition of blessedness. It's better to give than to get. And he wants to cultivate that passion in you. What, what about waiting? You like waiting? Show of hands. Who likes, who likes waiting? One per- you're a liar. <laughs> Guys, we hate waiting. And uh, I'm reading through Genesis right now. I just read the, the Abraham account. You, you wait, he waited. Sarah and Abraham waited decades, decades, decades for this thing that God wired them to want. This, this child that he promised them that he would provide. And they waited. God, God seems to be like excited about waiting. It's, it's weird, right? I had an old campus minister when I was in college who would try to cultivate a zeal for waiting in, in us, the college students, and he'd say, so here's what I want you to do. Next time you go to the store, instead of picking the shortest line, locate the longest line and just stand there. And this is before smartphones, so you couldn't even you know, scroll on your phone. You just had to wait, right? You can still people watch. There are other things that kind of you know, show up on your radar when you're forced to wait. God says there's a lot of waiting in life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pay dividends if you go ahead and get excited about the fact that waiting's a thing. What about forgiveness? Forgiveness. Are you excited to forgive? Because this is the biggie, right? When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he, he says all kinds of great things in the Lord's Prayer, but there's one thing he, he circles back to, right? Like an addendum to the Lord's Prayer. You know what it is? He's like, forgive. Because he knows that's the thing we're least excited to do. He says, but that's the thing I love to do. Jesus hanging on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Forgive these wretched people who are killing me. Because that's, that's a picture, that's a dramatic display of God's passion and zeal for forgiveness. See, what is at the heart of being half-hearted? Jonah's lukewarm, he's half-hearted. What's at the, what's at the heart of that? It's a, it's a forgiveness deficiency. Jesus makes this really clear. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house, this guy named Simon, and there's this woman of the city, right? Like a dirty woman. Like the society at this party would have been disgusted with this woman when she arrived on the scene. And to make a long story short, Jesus confronts the host of the party, this Pharisee, this self-righteous man, Simon, and he says, your big problem, Simon, is that you don't believe that you need my forgiveness. And therefore, you don't love. He says, that's the equation. That's how love works. The people who have been forgiven much, they love much. 
But those who have been forgiven little, it's like they don't know how to love. And, and that's what's lacking in Jonah. There's no love here in Jonah. When he goes to Nineveh, he doesn't have any love. There's no love in his message. Look what he says. He shows up and he says, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Right? Doesn't, doesn't have any compassion, no love, no kindness for the Ninevites. Doesn't want to share in the amazing reality of God's mercy with them, even though he has been shown tremendous mercy. He doesn't have any love. He doesn't provide any insight on how they might avoid destruction. Now, you'll, you'll see in the next few scenes, they, they kind of figure that out. By God's grace, they, they sort of have an inclination about what they need to do, what their next steps need to be. But none of that insight comes from the prophet Jonah. And that is tragic because that's the role of a prophet. Moses, right, the great prophet of the Old Testament. You know what Moses is always doing for wretched, horrible, self-absorbed, sinful people? You know what he's doing? He's interceding for them. He's always interceding for them. Right? He's not praying that God's wrath would fall on them. If you go later today and read Numbers 14, if God shows up into Moses' office and like lays on the couch and is like, God's saying to Moses, what, what am I going to do? How, how am I supposed to interact with these wayward, stubborn people? And it's like Moses has to counsel God. And Moses spends all this time interceding for the wicked Israelites who have defied and rebelled and been delinquent and depraved in all these various kinds of ways. And that's the heart of God. That's the mind of Christ. Again, when Jesus looks at sinful people who are in the act of crucifying God in the flesh, what does he say? He says, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is what God's going to say of the Ninevites. They don't know their right hand from their left. You should be pleading for these people, Jonah. You should be begging my wrath not to fall on them. You should be doing what Abraham does in Genesis where you say, if you find just 10 righteous people, will you please spare this city? But none of that comes through in the character of Jonah. And yet, it's the craziest thing. It's the craziest thing. The Ninevites, they hear the message, 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. It will be overthrown. They hear that and the Ninevites heed Jonah's message and what do they do? They repent. They're receptive to his message. Look at verse 5. It says, the people of Nineveh heard this really lousy sermon. We can all agree. This is a terrible sermon that Jonah just preached. <laughs> and they are super receptive. They believe God. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Everybody in the city. It's a revival. The Holy Spirit is, is profoundly, dramatically at work in the city of Nineveh in this moment in history. Imagine it like this. Imagine you're talking to an atheist. I don't know if y'all know any, any atheists. You're, you're, you're in regular conversation with atheists. But imagine it. You're talking to an atheist. Or, or you're talking to a Muslim. Or you're talking to an LGBTist. Or a capitalist. Or a Buddhist. Or a Mormon. Or a hedonist. Any, any version of person who's not addicted to Jesus. Okay? And you're talking with this person. And at, at some point in the conversation, you timidly say... I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Or Jesus is the only way to avoid going to hell. And you say it like that because you're, you're afraid of being canceled. So you're really timid and you're reluctant and you, just, and you just run away. You just run away after saying that. And then a week goes by and you're watching the news and the anchor man is reporting that all of the 
outspoken atheist groups in the city have converted and they are now planting churches. Like, like Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, the church planter. That, that happened because of your timid to have a relationship with God. And the gay pride parade has been canceled. And now all those people are, are hosting a prayer meeting to pray to the only true and living God. And the Mormons have brought out all the Book of Mormons and they're burning them in the city square. You're not burning their books. They're burning their own books, just like you see in the account of Luke in the gospel, uh, the story of Acts. Because they're like, this is, this is a demonic, deceptive piece of literature and we're going to burn all of the books of Mormon. And the capitalists have traded their suits for sackcloth. And they're, they're deeply lamenting and grieving their greediness. And they're giving away not, not just some money now, but, but like lots and lots of money. Like four times more than what they had hoarded for themselves, like the story of Zacchaeus. All of this from your lousy little timid sermon where you, where you, where you dared to speak of the exclusivity of Jesus. That would be crazy. <laughs> that would be insane if that happened, right? You would never expect that to be the result of, of your timid little statement about Jesus being the only way. There are, there are perhaps some here today, I, I sense that there probably are some here today who identify with the people of Nineveh. In other words, you're, you're not churchy, you know, you're, you're not really a person who thinks of themselves as a Christian, you know, you're, you're just here visiting. And today, this morning, the Holy Spirit is applying this supernatural passage, the power of this passage to your life. And it's hitting you in a way similar to, to the way it hit the Ninevites. Uh, you are grieved by the fact that your life is not aligned with the will of God. And that is worth recognizing and celebrating. Because God says in 2 Corinthians, I rejoice that you are grieved if it is a grief that leads to repentance. I don't want you wallowing in, in grief and guilt. I want you to be grieved to the extent that it leads you to repentance. I want you to feel godly grief, which produces repentance that leads to salvation that is without regret. And that's what the Ninevites are getting. And some of you this morning are getting that. You're feeling that same thing happening in your life. And that's wonderful. But what about Jonah? Or to say it another way, what about the church? What about Christians? Most of us here today would say we, we have a lot more in common with Jonah than we do the Ninevites. It would be really easy for us this morning, the people gathered in this room, for us to say, you know, when I read this story of, of the Ninevites being receptive to Jonah's message, I think to myself, well, that's good. That's good that the Ninevites repented because I've always thought that they, those wretched Ninevites, that they needed to repent. And that's true. God doesn't disagree. They need to repent. And it's true that there's a character in the story who really, really needs to repent. And it's not the pagans. It's the pious Jonah. It's the faithful church attender, Jonah, who prays to be back in the temple with the people of God in Jerusalem. It's this pious, morally upright prophet man, Jonah. And he needs, very specifically, he needs to repent of his self-righteousness. And he needs to repent of being, as we will see, especially at the end of the story, cranky and pouty and jaded. And as I use those words, self-righteous, cranky, pouty, and jaded, many of you, even if you don't want to admit it, you know I'm describing you. 
This is how we are. We pretend that we're not this way, but this is how we are. This is the natural bent for us. Self-righteousness. I think I'm better than other people. And I get cranky and I get pouty when I don't get my way. And God's saying more than anything in the story of Jonah, you self-righteous, cranky, pouted, jady, bitter people, you need to repent. Think of Jonah as being jaded toward the Ninevites not simply on the level that he doesn't want them to be adopted into the family of God. He doesn't want them to have the mercy. Think of it the way you've experienced the, the process of bitterness. Imagine that Jonah has at some point in the past wanted all people all over the world to change, to, to conform uh, to the, the will of God. But over the years, he hasn't seen it. And he's tried everything he can think of to get people to convert to the only true and living God. And without realizing it, over the years, he's become cynical. He's become jaded. He's become bitter. And now he's not going to let himself get his hopes up anymore. He's not going to allow himself to dare to care. Because when you care about people and you don't see change, it just hurts. And so we justify feeling jaded. And bitter. And God's saying, that, that is what you need to repent of. And God's not being mean when he says that. He's not saying, you need to repent because you've been bad. Yes, you've been bad. But the point of repentance is joy. God wants to work with you for your joy. We already read it. I'll read it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. God rejoices that you feel godly grief that leads to repentance so that you can enjoy salvation that is without regret. We need to repent of our unbelief, of hardening ourselves because it feels too vulnerable and, and too weak to care. We need to understand that God is always calling us because of his insistence on our joy toward faith, hope, and love. And Jonah, the story of Jonah, forces you to confront this. It forces you to see that God wants to eclipse your unbelief and your bitterness with his love, joy, and hope. That's what you're being invited into. God says, I want you to experience what I experience when you repent. I rejoice that you are grieved so that you can enjoy a salvation that is without regret. That's what the Ninevites are getting right now. They're getting their first taste of that godly grief. And Jonah, the main character of the book, the character that we most resemble, Jonah is the is the call of God in our lives to bring us down that same path. And so let me pray and let us all ask that God would give us that gift this morning. Jesus, we ask that you would uh, help us because, again, we are like sheep. We don't, we don't really sense the things we need to be sensing. And we certainly don't listen and trust and obey in all the ways that would be healthy and helpful for us. So we're asking you to override. We're asking you to intervene. We're asking you to do what the good shepherd must do, which might involve uh, grieving us so that we could in this life and then for all eternity experience the more lasting, more indelible gift of your joy that we might be enveloped into the faith and the hope and the love that is found in Christ alone. God, we, we see in this passage that you will, you will convert some of those people that we are jaded toward. 
You will do it. I don't know some of our non-Christian family members and friends, and we pray that we would, we would enjoy looking forward to that day. We would revel in the mercy of God because that's what you prevail upon us with, and that's what you want to uh, bestow upon everybody uh, in the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray that that would really be the, the epicenter of what we think about every day that we are a part of the kingdom work of God, the staggering grace of God. And we pray this in your name. Amen.